0: Welcome back everybody.
1: This morning we read from Nehemiah 5, verses 1 through 9a. Now the men and their wives raised a great outcry against their fellow Jews. Some were saying, we and our sons and daughters are numerous. In order for us to eat and stay alive, we must get grain. Others were saying we are mortgaging our fields, our vineyards, and our homes to get grain during the famine. And still others were saying, we have had to borrow money to pay the king's tax on our fields and vineyards. Although we are of the same flesh and blood as the rest of our people, and though our children are as good as theirs, yet we have to subject our sons and daughters to slavery. Some of our daughters have already been enslaved, but we are powerless because our fields and our vineyards belong to others.
0: Shout for joy, for the Lord. Desire to be.
1: heard their outcry and these charges, I was very angry. I pondered them in my mind and then accused the nobles and officials. I told them, you are charging your own people interest. So I called together a large meeting to deal with them and said, as far as possible, we have bought back our fellow Jews' who were sold to the Gentiles. Now you are selling your own people only for them to be sold back to us. They kept quiet because they could find nothing to say. So I continued, what you are doing is not right.
0: The word of the Lord. And shout for joy for the Lord. Desires to be with you. And by his love, you will do the work of rebuilding.
2: Amen and amen. Good morning, everybody. My name is Tim. If we haven't met, I'm one of the pastors here. It's good to see you. <clears throat> And as Ashley said, the sunshine is here, so much so that I was so distracted by it, I forgot to take my allergy meds for two days. So, you're welcome. Uh, And yesterday, in the sunshine, I I ventured out for a perimeter inspection around the household. And uh, I stood there, as you do, looking at things, contemplating, should I do a house project or not? And I said, no. Because I, ha- I had this flashback to when I was, I was young in my working career, and I was working for a contractor who would build pole barns. And it was after a couple weeks on the job, we had some rough framing left to do, and he's like, Nelson, you take this by yourself. I'll be back. And I was like, great. I'm kicking it at this job. I'm just going to crush it. So I'm just cruising right along, putting up two-by-fours, and, and, and all of a sudden the contractor gets back about an hour later, and he just kind of does one of these... Then he does one of these, one of these. And I was like, well, "This looks great. And he's like, are you serious? Look at this. And the lines that were supposed to be parallel were a little bit like this, because my measurements had gotten off because I was doing this all on my own, trying to do it quickly. And so the moral of that story and the reason I didn't do any house projects yesterday was you can't build anything well alone, right? It takes some teamwork. And that's a little bit of what we're going after in Nehemiah today. We have a lot of ground to cover. Three chapters, three, four, five. Uh, This series has been a blast so far. Uh, Troy kicked us off on week number one, looking at Nehemiah as the contemplative in action, the one who took months to pray and contemplate before moving into action giving us a similar invitation. We also heard from Ashley last week on chapter two where there's a season of reflection and formation inviting us to investigate where is your heart and to walk the wreckage around you and to do a perimeter inspection of your life and the work that is in front of you and be formed in a way so that you can participate in the work of building. Today we get to chapter three and we're gonna build. They get moving. We've got a lot, of, a lot of ground to cover. If you're someone who likes to have a Bible in hand, it could be handy today. We have them in the blue carts uh, around the room for you. So uh, let's uh, get to work. Chapter 3. It opens like this. Elishabah, the high priest and his fellow priests, went to work to rebuild the sheep gate. What I love is they kick off this building effort with the high priests. I kind of picture these guys, I don't know what they wore to work, they're just kind of hiking up the robes and we're we're moving. And they begin with the sheep gate. The gates are going to feature very prominently in our text in chapter 3 for us today. I'm going to read for you, uh, this is verse 6 through 12 of chapter 3, and I want you to just listen to what you hear in the narrative of the rebuilding starting. Hmm. The old gate, or the Jessana gate, was repaired by Joada, son of Pesach, Meshulam, son of Besodeel. They laid its beams and put its doors with their bolts and bars in place. Next to them, repairs were made by the men of Gibeon and Mizpah, Melatia of Gibeon and Jadon of Maranath, places under the authority of the trans-Euphrates. Uziel, son of Hananiah, one of the goldsmiths, repaired the next section. And then Hananiah, one of the perfume makers, made repairs next to that. And they restored Jerusalem as far as the broad wall. And Rephiah, son of Hur, ruler of the half-district of Jerusalem, repaired the next section. Adjoining this, Jedidiah, son of Harum, made repairs opposite his house. And Hatsu, son of Hashaniah, made repairs next to him. Malakajah, son of Harim and Asub, and Patab Moab repaired another section of the tower, ovens. Shalom, son of Haloshesh, ruler of half the district of Jerusalem, repaired the next section with the help of his daughters. Not going to make you guys read the names out loud. That's my job. But what did you notice? What do you notice about what's, what's come up there? Let's, let's really throw something out there. What do you notice about that particular section of the text? What's highlighted for us? What? Who did the work? Where the work was done, the names—it doesn't. It also doesn't read easily. If you've been following the invitation to read the Book of Nehemiah twice or once a week with us, you'll recognize it's a really good, engaging story. It starts off with this this man in a faraway country, and he and he gets this letter, and he's you know the cupbearer to the king, and it flows really well until you get to chapter three, and then you have to read. Four times, of, like I did, right here. Names, occupations, family members. And I would imagine that the author knows this isn't an easy read, but it's worth pausing to highlight something about the rebuilding of Jerusalem. Is that this project takes everybody. Everybody and anybody needs to be in on this. That, that you matter in this project. I love that we hear some occupations in there. The goldsmith, the perfume maker. I had a great conversation in Costco with some friends uh, from Mars Hill about why is there a perfume maker? Their theory was that it was when somebody died, they needed to embalm them. Great insight, by the way. And so all these occupations, they matter in the work of rebuilding. Many a time when I was pounding crooked boards into pole barns as a young man, I'm like, what does this have to do with the kingdom of God? And yet a text like this invites us to consider that your work, in the home, outside the home, paid or unpaid, really matters. And we're in this together. We get this interesting dynamic here that there's a phrase in the Bible that shows up called, next to him. It's a simple phrase. It shows up seven times in the scriptures. All seven of them are in Nehemiah chapter 3. That this is an undertaking we take together alongside one another. If you were to read through chapter 3, you'd also see that there are ten gates that were rebuilt in the city of Jerusalem. And this is the work that we're participating in. Let's pause there. Think with me about your home, your, your dwelling. What are the most vulnerable places for intruders to come in? What do we have? Windows, doors, chimneys, only in December, right? Windows and doors, these are the, work, these are the weak parts of our dwellings. and. And there's probably one person, if you, li- if you don't live alone, and maybe it is you if you do, who walks around each evening and checks the windows, checks the doors, and if you're like me, you just check that the kids didn't bump the gas stove knobs, right? Because security matters. It was a number of years ago that my in-laws had their home broken into, had some stuff stolen. And you would better believe that wh- in, over the next couple of weeks, they got a security system installed with new locks on the windows and the doors, because security matters, as well it should. But then why, question with me, why, if you were rebuilding a city that in recent memory was ransacked, broken into, and leveled, why would you put not one, not two, but ten weak points in the wall? I wonder if the text is telling us something. Now, they're not just weak points. We call them gates. More appropriately in the text, city gates. These are places in the ancient world where commerce happened, where connection was made. Now, many cities only had one, right? It's the smart decision. Like the city of Troy, here we have on the, on the picture. Now, this was taken in 2004 from the movie Troy, so it's not super accurate. But we do think, we do think that they only had one gate, uh, maybe two. Most, most cities did because it's more secure. But I think it's pointing to a different value system that there are 10. Let's think about it this way. At the city gates, you could you could do some Googling, some Bible reading on this all day long. That's where the commerce happens, the connect, community and connection happens. But more importantly than the civic duties, this is where the poor and the lame are fed. It's where the center of the welfare system in the ancient world takes place. This is where those who do not have can come and receive medical attention, food, water, the possibility of work and wages. That's what we need to bring to mind when the scriptures tell us about the city gates. And so would it be that Jerusalem, a city that ought to be different, the city on the hill, the city of David, is putting forth a value system that is less about security, but is more about meeting the needs of the world. And they're going to sacrifice some vulnerability and protection in favor of connection and help, that they're going to lay aside security and self-preservation to a certain extent in order to meet the needs of the world. And so would it be that this also is a word for the church, that in a season of rebuilding, we too are called to lay aside security and self-preservation as our primary mode And replace it with connection and vulnerability and generosity. For we followed the Jesus who did not take the security of heaven and hold on to it, but instead gave it away, not only unto danger, but unto death. And that's our model. So maybe even in the construction of these walls, if you see them there, maybe that's even trying to tell us something. I think it could. Chapter 4, as my father would say, the plot thickens. Now we, we met a few characters earlier in the story, and they come up again. In fact, chapter 4 begins like this. When Sanballat heard that we were rebuilding the wall, he became angry and incensed. This is another political leader, some opposition to Nehemiah. And verse 7 of chapter 4 says this. And when Sanballat and Tobiah and the Arabs among them Geshem and the Ammonites heard about the repairs to the wall and the gaps were being closed, they plotted together to come and fight against Jerusalem and stir up trouble against it. So friends, in the middle of this rebuilding effort, when this city is moving towards a different model of being a city, there is opposition. Mostly from these three characters. It's on the screen, Sanballat, Tobiah, and Geshem. Their names come up. We've heard them already. You'll hear them again if you're reading through Nehemiah. Now, these guys just keep coming up, right? I think if you're a Lion King fan, this is a good way to think about them, right? They're just always there causing trouble. Again, they're also political opponents. So we have here on the screen, right? We've got Madison, Jefferson, Burr, trying to always push against the political nature of our protagonist, Nehemiah. And they're always laying traps for this guy, like Wiley e. Coyote, right? He's Any, any turn Nehemiah does, these guys are like, oh, I'm going to get ahead of him. And so th- this, I, I say this somewhat in jest, but also seriously. Seriously, because opposition does come and will come. And somewhat it's laughable because we know the story. That this opposition is coming against one leader and the collection of God's people who are called and resourced by the Most High. And so they can laugh in the face of this opposition, even though it's really serious. And I would invite us to consider the opportunity to do the same. Uh, If we look through chapter four, give it a quick look, we're going to realize what we already know to be true that there is opposition coming against good kingdom work, especially work that pushes against the corrupt systems, proclaiming that there is a new king and a new kingdom and a new way of being a city. To that there is opposition and difficulty. There's also something at a personal level. If we look more closely, this will be on the screen. This is uh, also in chapter four. This is Sanballat. He ridiculed the Jews. In the presence of his associates and the army of Samaria, he said, what are those feeble Jews doing? Will they restore their wall? Will they offer sacrifices? Will they finish in a day? Can they bring the stones back to life from those heaps of rubble? burned as they are and he goes on to whip up more support and ask more questions like this but when I hear these questions I think of a Jesus who stood on that same dirt outside those same walls a couple hundred years later and was uh, had questions coming at him like who does this man think he is who is he the son of God who is he to say he'll tear down the temple and raise it again in three days can anything good come from Galilee these poking cutting identity questions are coming at the people of israel later at the person of jesus and i bet you and i know these questions all too well when we step up to do something to enter the work of rebuilding cutting questions like these from the internal critic or externally are often very present for us and that's part of the story too Nehemiah continues, he responds in in verse 19 of chapter 4, he says, Then I said to the nobles and the officials and the rest of the people, The work is extensive and it's spread out. And we are widely separated from each other along the wall." So whenever you hear the sound of the trumpet, join us there. Our God will fight for us. Instead of pointing to saying, you just better do better. Or I, I Nehemiah, i am going to push back against these accusations individually. He doesn't wrestle with the pigs in the mud. He says, together, though spread out, we can do something as a community offers a new identity and then even more importantly says this when the trumpet sounds join us for our god will fight for us i think he's channeling the words of exodus 14 where we hear the lord will fight for you you need only be still as another leader of israel is leading a second exodus back to the promised land We too can find ourselves in this moment when there is a better story and a better narrative that we can do together. So friends, do not fight these accusations alone. Even this morning we have a group of folks, a trained prayer team who's willing to pray with you. Any of our pastors on staff are willing to walk alongside you to push back in the name of Jesus for the long haul against these type of narratives and voices that assail us as we do the work of rebuilding. You are not in this work alone. And so Nehemiah continues. This is verse 21, chapter 4. So we continued the work with half the men holding spears from the first light of dawn till the stars came out. At that time, I also said to the people, have every man and his helper stay inside. Jerusalem at night, so they can serve us as guards by day, and and, uh, guards by night and workers by day, Neither I know my brothers or my men, nor the guards with me, took off our clothes. Each had his weapon, even when he went for water. So they, in the face of this opposition, saying this mission of rebuilding is too important, so we're going to change the way we operate. We're going to carry in one hand the masonry spade and a sword in the other in order to say this work is important, so we in this particular time of chaos and rebuilding are going to pivot a little bit how we're doing things. And I think that's an invitation for you and I to say that we, too, operate with the prayer book in one and the newspaper in the other, to say that we are people who work and pray at the same time, that we practice vigilance as well as vulnerability, that we do ministry together with caution and compassion, that there's wisdom while we work together. We need to be aware, as Jesus says in the book of Matthew, to be as as wise as serpents and as innocent as doves. And this is a complex dance to navigate, but we do it together. And so do not be surprised by the opposition that comes against us. A favorite quote of mine from this year, Ashley shared it last week from Sid Holmes, if you stay ready, you ain't got to get ready. Right? Right? So, friends, we, the invitation, again, in the text is to stay ready, to operate with wisdom and compassion, with the tools of rebuilding in the other, and the tools, the armor, and the sword of the spirit in the other. And that is how we move forward to chapter 5. Here we finally get around to the teaching text that Lynn read for us. Here the opposition to the Jews rebuilding, is not from without, but from within. That there's something happening inside the people. Highlighting for us is scholar Christina Cleveland, who says this, if we are one body, then we are one that is afflicted with an autoimmune disease. It's hard to be one people together. So what's happening here in chapter 5 It opens, as Lynn read for us, Now the men and their wives raised a great outcry against their fellow Jews. Some were saying, We and our sons and daughters were numerous, but in order for us to eat and stay alive, we must get grain. They're highlighting that they are in a time, or at least... The the majority of the Jews are in a place where they are finding, amidst the chaos and the rebuilding, they're finding a time of scarcity, inflation, and grain shortages. And on top of that, there are higher interest rates. I've heard of this. But this chapter starts with, there was a great cry raised. Friends, I don't, I don't know the economic future, but I do know that things are not awesome for a lot of folks right now. And I do know that in times like this, there's opportunity for some. And what we see in the text is Nehemiah coming against some people who said, you know, I'm going to take advantage of this situation in a way that directly and indirectly oppresses their own people. And he says to them, what you are doing is not right. So I think two invitations are in front of us. One, do you have somebody in your life like a Nehemiah who you have invited in? Maybe it's a mentor, a teacher, a pastor, a co-worker who can come to you and say, what you're doing is not right. I don't think you're okay. Do you need some help? Do you have someone like that? What a gift as we walk the long journey of following Jesus together. Also, Nehemiah comes to these people and says, what you're doing is not right because it wasn't right. They were economically advantaging themselves from a situation that pushed others down. And so, that makes logical sense. We know that's not right. But I would, I would encourage you, maybe this is a time to do another perimeter inspection, even of your own finances, and say, what's the legacy you want to leave? What project are you building? Because the shadow that's cast over chapter five while they're talking about this microeconomic stuff is that there's a whole project happening over here. There's a whole kingdom being built, and these folks are not only taking unfair advantage of others, but they're just totally missing the whole story that's going on behind them. They are concerned with Project Self in the midst of Project Kingdom, and they're missing out. And so that's the question I want to pose to you and your family and our community. In the midst of a time of chaos and uncertainty, what fruit leaks out? What raises to the top? Is it scarcity? Is it self-protection? Is it times are tough? I don't know what's going to be ahead, so I'm going to make these economic moves now because I can. Or is it a city with 10 gates that is more vulnerable but opens itself to be a gateway to the world? Where generosity is the fruit that comes to the top. Where giving away of oneself, even in the uncertainty of the future, is what is raised up. So may it not be said of us that the Nehemiah would come and say, this is the fruit, what you're doing is not right. But that in times of rebuilding and chaos and uncertainty and famine and inflation and high interest rates, that we, Mars Hill Bible Church, are a people who give generously. Generously. That we respond to the needs of the world, pushing against the systems that are broken and creating new ones that look more like the kingdom of God that Nehemiah is putting together and that we're invited to put together as well. That's the invitation that is in front of us. And we have a model for this. A few hundred years later, there's another man who sits in this very same city, in a time of economic uncertainty, social unrest, and has all the power to leverage that for himself, but does not. Instead, this Jesus takes himself, not just his self-worth, not just his portfolio, but himself, and offers it back for the world so that what is then broken could be the thing that is built up into a different kingdom with different values. And so we too want to follow that way and also be fed from that sacrifice. And so we come to the table together to find sustenance for this journey of rebuilding together a place where everybody is welcomed and needed to be a part of. A place where we follow this Jesus on the downward trajectory of generosity and mercy and self-sacrifice and giving even in the face of uncertainty. So we gather around a table to celebrate that Jesus. So I say to you, the Lord be with you. you. Lift up your hearts. Let us give thanks to the Lord our God. Let us pray. And so, Lord, you who have set before people meals for generations, we say how right and good and joyful thing it is in all times and in all places to give thanks to you, God Almighty creator of heaven and earth. And so therefore, Lord, we join to praise you, joining our voices with the angels and archangels and with all the company of heaven who forever sing this hymn and proclaim the glory of your name. Holy, holy, holy Lord, God of power and might, heaven and earth are full of your glory. Hosanna in the highest. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. And so, God, from on high, we we pray that you would send your spirit in a fresh way this morning, that this cup that we drink together and this bread that we break together, that it would be unto us the body of Jesus Christ, the communion of saints, and that you would do for us what we cannot do for ourselves, that you would build us up, would you transform us, would you bind us together and carry us forward into the work ahead and into the eternal kingdom. We ask this in your name. Amen. And so it was this Jesus who called his disciples together on the night in which he was betrayed, and with them, he takes the bread at the beginning of the meal. And knowing this was to symbolize himself, he broke it, he said, "This is my body given for you." And after the meal, Jesus takes the cup, says, this is the new covenant in my blood, the new promise shed for you for the forgiveness of sins. And so now we do the same. We meet the same Christ at the meal to be sustained for the work ahead, to be healed and transformed. And we do this as one community where all people are needed for the journey ahead. Because what we do at this table is we rehearse the story, the eternal story, and we say it together, that Christ has died, Christ is risen, and Christ will come again. And so friends, as we rehearse this story, we have tables around the room for the bread and the cup to be taken We have prayer walls. This is a time to come against some of those voices and narratives in prayer. We have folks who would pray with you. Brian's back by the mural. Paul's back by the prayer room. We'd love to journey alongside you in prayer. And this is also a time uh, to reflect and worship for yourself. And for another week or two, we have behind the prayer walls, boards, actual two-by-fours, and we will nail them straight to the wall. But on them is a chance for you to write down what it is that you're bringing. What's a dream or a hope for this thing that God is building through Marceau Bible Church? Everybody's got a place in this plan. It reads very clearly through Nehemiah chapter three. So put on there, what's something that you uh, are bringing to the table? What's something God has placed on your heart? We want to fill this new art installation with the words and callings of this particular church because your presence and your gifts, you matter. So you can take that in over the next few minutes as well. And so friends, come to the table. Come and eat and be satisfied and be renewed. And come receive who you are, the body of Christ.